Last week, we gave our attention to Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed. Remember, a parable is an analogy. It uses something familiar to the hearer to help them understand something unfamiliar. Something from everyday life, like a farmer sowing seed in a field, to help the listener understand a spiritual truth, like what happens when God's word is taught. The message of the parable of the sower and the seed is that God's Word has power. Yes, we live in a world where Satan sometimes snatches the Word away before it is believed. A world where sometimes faith springs up quickly only to wither and die when difficulties come because there's no depth to that faith. A world where the desire for earthly wealth and worries about the mundane things of life can choke out faith. Though all of that is true, The Word has power to work in our hearts and our lives. It is how the kingdom of God comes. So, treasure the Word. Grow in it. In this podcast, we look at three more parables and then at a boat ride in a storm. Let's pray. Lord, open now my heart to hear, and through your Word to me draw near. Let me your Word ere pure retain. Let me, your child and heir, remain. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. This parable, too, is about the Word. When the Word is taught, it lights a lamp, our faith. Remember, in those days, there was no electrical wiring. You couldn't flip a switch and the overhead lights go on. No, in the evening, you lit an oil lamp. And what did you do with the lit lamp? Put a bucket over it? No, that would be stupid. Put it under a bed. Now, that sounds downright dangerous. You set it on a stand so that it could give light to the house. So too, when God's word lights a flame of faith in our hearts, that faith is not to be hidden. It is to be shared, to give light to others. Jesus once said, I am the light of the world. And then he calls us the light. Not in the same sense he is the light, but rather we are to shine his light, to reflect it. We maybe cannot light up the whole world, but we can shine the light of Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools. In the next verses, Jesus impresses on us just how serious this is. Verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear, Jesus continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. Pastor Harold Wicke in the People's Bible shares the story of Ernest Hemingway, who grew up in a Christian home. Later in life, Hemingway wrote to a family member, Yes, I still believe in Christ, but don't tell anyone. We know how Hemingway lived 
and died by suicide. When you hide your light, you are in danger of losing it. Whoever has will be given more, Jesus said. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away. Sharing our faith leads us to dig deeper into the scriptures. Digging deeper leads us to greater insights and greater blessings. But neglecting to share our faith, neglecting gathering for worship, leads to our light going out. Verse 26. This is what the kingdom of God is like. In other words, this is what God's ruling activity in our hearts is like. A man scatters seed in the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Do you remember as a child planting seeds, maybe in a clear plastic cup when you were in grade school science class, and watching with amazement as the seed sprouted, sent down roots, sent up a stalk that reached for the light. If you left it long enough, you saw that that plant produced more seeds. There's power in, in a seed. Well, there's power in the word. Jesus echoes Isaiah 55. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. There are times when we hear a sermon, participate in a Bible study, read a devotion, and it has a powerful and immediate effect, like drinking a cool glass of water on a hot day. But more often, it's like taking our vitamins. I don't generally walk out of church feeling profoundly different than when I walked in. My child doesn't come out of Sunday school, a completely different child, than walked into that Sunday school classroom. But make no mistake, Jesus says, though it may be imperceptible, like a seed germinating under the soil, the word is at work. It is like a seed that is planted. If I want potatoes for supper tonight, it won't do to plant potatoes this morning. But make no mistake, there will be potatoes because there's power in a seed. Just so, there's power in the word. And when it is planted, there will be a harvest. Reaped now in this life is our confidence in God's promises grows. And with our confidence in God's promises grows also then our peace and our hope. And there will also be a harvest at the end of time, a harvest of souls, one for Christ. Verse 30. Again, Jesus said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Some Sunday morning, look around in the chancel. What do you see? Water? A book? Bread? Wine? Doesn't look like much, does it? Look around you in the seats. What do you see? Sinners. Poor, miserable sinners. 
people whose behavior does not rise to the standards God has set for us. And if we're honest, we know we fit right into this group of beggars. This just doesn't look like the kingdom of God ought to look. Jesus' first followers must have thought the same thing. They had been waiting for the promised Messiah, and and there were great signs that he had come. The blind were made to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. And Jesus taught with authority like no other. But Rome still called the shots. The family of Herod still committed their atrocities. And to top it all off, Jesus ate with sinners. He was associating with the wrong kind of people. Instead of raising a mighty army, he was a humble traveling teacher. It just didn't look like much. Jesus says, consider the mustard seed, proverbially the smallest of seeds. It's hard to place a lot of confidence in such a tiny little seed. It looks so small, so lacking of all signs of life. It's difficult to see any potential power packed inside it. But you plant it, And it grows into a shrub so large it shelters wildlife. So too, in these small and simple things, water connected with the word, bread and wine connected to Jesus' promise, the message of the cross in these ordinary-looking things is the power of the kingdom. I stare at my grandchildren, and I don't see them grow, but they are. I know, because... Every time I go to visit them, they look different. They are growing. The growth of the kingdom may seem imperceptible to us at times. But here is a kingdom where we find rest and peace that transcends all understanding. A kingdom where the word is taking root in people's lives and their confidence in Christ is growing. Here is a kingdom where the final harvest will be awesome. Those are the three parables Now the boat ride in the storm, verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. You get some idea of how tired Jesus was because Mark tells us they took him along just as he was in the boat. And Jesus falls asleep at the drop of an oar. I remember once being on a lake and being caught in a a storm that had come up very suddenly. If I had been by myself or with my buddies, I probably would have been afraid. But I was with my dad. He was driving the boat and so I wasn't worried at all. After all, his job was to go out on the lake during storms and rescue people. Now, the the fact that the boat he used for such purposes was much larger than the little fishing boat we were in, which was getting pounded by waves right now, that was kind of lost on me. It was an adventure, because my dad was in control. Jesus sleeps in peace because he knows my father is in control. The disciples have no such confidence, and so they are in a panic. Middle of verse 38. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, keep in mind, these disciples were not a bunch of tourists from Nebraska who had never been on a boat before, needlessly panicking because there was a little chop on the water. 
No, among them were experienced fishermen who had spent much of their lives on this body of water. They knew a thing or two about storms, and right now they're thinking, we're toast. We're going to meet our maker at the bottom of this lake. And so they say, teacher, don't you care? What a dagger that must have been in Jesus' heart. Don't you care? It was caring that caused Jesus to be born in Bethlehem stable. It was caring that made him heal the hurting. It was caring that led him to raise the dead. And it was God's great caring that would someday have a beaten Jesus standing before a Roman governor, unjustly accused by his own people, forsaken by both government and justice. A caring Jesus lived, died, and rose for this frightened world. Could anything the disciples have said have wounded him more? But accusing God of not caring is not unique to the disciples. We may not be as vocal as the guys in the boat, but in our hearts have we wondered, does God care? For our, our storms may be different, but the sudden job loss, the unfaithful spouse, the temptation we succumb to again and again, strained relationships, whatever the tragedy or hardship might be, and we found ourselves wondering, God, don't you care? And he dies. He stood up in the boat, verse 39, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And then he rebuked his disciples, verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why? Why did Jesus rebuke his disciples? Because storms aren't scary? Come on, you guys, don't be such babies. No, storms are scary. So why did Jesus rebuke them? Because he had made some awesome plans for their lives, which he has already shared with them. And he wasn't going to let a storm interfere with those plans. After Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples did not break out in cheers. They were, they were in awe. Mark tells us, verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I had some surgery, heart surgery, three weeks ago. In the appointment the week before the surgery, the medical staff was explaining everything they were going to do. Put a tube down my throat to breathe for me. Hooked me up to a machine to circulate my blood while my heart was stopped. Collapse a lung to get the robotic arms through my chest to my heart. And as he was describing all this, the nurse said to me, you seem very relaxed about all this. I said, well, I trust you and the doctors that you're going to take good care of me. Most of all, I know that I am in God's hands. I wish I had been better prepared and had given a better answer like this. If Jesus loved me enough to take away my guilt on his cross and to open heaven for me, then I'm pretty sure he's going to work the surgery out according to his plan for me. Friends, that's our confidence. We are always in the loving hands of our Almighty God. That peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Next week, one of the most powerful chapters in Mark's Gospel and one of my favorites, Chapter 5.